Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this time to come together, to worship you, to learn more about you, and to just love on each other. Uh, we're a family here, Lord, and just help us to, to love and care for each other and take that out into the world so that other people can feel your love. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, over the last few weeks, uh, we've been talking about leading up to Easter, what it means to be a part of a church family. And one of the reasons why we talked about doing this was because, you know, when Christ came to die on the cross, a big part of what he was doing was he was creating a sense of unity between all individuals who are joining in with, like, the body of Christ. And, I mean, that, that's a phrase that we use in churches a lot, and it's something that kind of sounds a little high church. But, you know, in terms of, like, common language, it's kind of hard to understand exactly what it means <laughs> to be a part of the body of Christ. And really what it's talking about, the best, you know, kind of common analogy that I think we can really give is it means being a family. And I think this is something that is supported by Scripture because when you look at the language that Christ himself uses and that the apostles use and everything for what it means to be a part of the body of Christ, you constantly see these analogies to a family. You see things you know, being talked about in terms of, you, know, you can even see God the Father. Well, why is he called God the Father? You know, God the Father, God in heaven, you know, does, doesn't you know, have the same kind of biological or even really like parental type of role that we think of as a father. So why is it that we refer to him as God the Father? And it's because there is some kind of understanding of we, we understand what a family unit is and we, we can relate to that. And so you can see God using this type of language that we understand in order to help us to relate to what it means to be a part of, quote unquote, the body of Christ. So when we say that, Think family. That's really what we're talking about. And that's what we've been talking about over the last several weeks is what it means to be a part of a family, to support one another and serve one another, to encourage one another. We talked about all these different things that families do with each other. And I think kind of a side effect of what's come out of that has been understanding what it means to be a part of a church that's more than just kind of like a a religious industrial complex. You know, something that's more than just kind of like you know, the thing and the buildings and all that kind of stuff. Not that those things are inherently bad. I love me some good old religion, um, but it can't just be that. You know, I think about growing up, uh, and I know I've, I've made comments about this, you know, in the past, but, you know, I can remember being in a church meeting one time where uh, we were kind of discussing, you know, kind of this dichotomy that exists between kind of contemporary churches and old-fashioned churches and all that. And I remember I made the comment and said, look, I'm, I'm very sympathetic towards, you know, kind of the old way of doing religion because I grew up with it. And I mean, I really, really liked it. And somebody who is kind of, um, I'll, I'll say, uh, passionately voicing their opinion, that was counter to mine, uh, they, they brought me and said, look, I understand. Look, I grew up in an old-fashioned church too, okay, because we had little hymnals and the piano and all that. And I kind of I smirked and went, that, that, that's not what I mean when I say old-fashioned because – because you're saying old-fashioned, you mean like like an old little country church. When I say old-fashioned, I mean it had a gothic spire on it. It had two horns or uh, pipe sets here with brass trumpets in the back, and we processed in with. You'd have somebody holding the big the big brass cross, you know, as you kind of process down with the choir behind them. And it's just it, it's this big ornate type of thing. You do that every single Sunday, and you know it's funny because I think growing up in it, you kind of didn't. Um, you didn't really appreciate what was taking place. And a lot of people, unfortunately, just kind of due to how a lot of these, you know, kind of church industrial complexes work, 
a lot of people have been hurt by these things, um, and so they kind of end up uh, having the beauty of the religion taken away due to their due to the poor experiences. But I can remember stepping away from that church for a long time and then coming back because there was some community event where I was coming back to that particular church. And just everything just brought you to tears because it was, again, it was just so beautiful when you kind of looked at how everything unfolded. But yet I look at that same kind of beauty and how everything can be in these kind of displays of devotion to our God and you think about how much of a tragedy it is that so many individuals aren't able to connect to that because of these negative experiences they've had at the hands of old-fashioned religion. And I think the reason why that happens so easily and the reason why churches can't sit here and look at individuals in their congregation and say, well, you're the problem if you're not experiencing this right, is because those churches have forgotten that your first priority is to your family. And it's too encouraging that sense of family among the people who are in this group with you. All the other stuff is awesome. It can be absolutely breathtaking. But if you don't have the sense of family in your church community, you're totally missing the purpose of what Christ came and did when he said, I'm here to remove these barriers that you have in between you. You are now all part of a family because you are now a part of my body. Now, I think what we end up boiling everything down to when we look at the past several weeks and everything we've been talking about with supporting and serving and building each other up is love. That's really what it comes down to. And we couldn't have started at love because if we had started at love, then I think in a sense, you know, that becomes kind of the convenient thing where we say, what does it mean to be a part of a family? So you love one another and then you go, all right, we're done. We don't have to talk about anything else. But that kind of sells it short because sometimes we don't actually understand or in our heads we don't actually break down what it means to love another person. You can see this actually played out when you look at what Christ talks about as the greatest commandment and how quickly some people are to just kind of say it and throw it out there and to kind of move on. In Matthew 22, 37-40 we see, He said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. These are things that we'll say as kind of a catch-all, and it's not that it's inaccurate, but sometimes it's not super helpful. Because, again, we roll so many things into this word love without actually thinking about what it means. Now, fortunately, we do have things that are that are in the Bible that talk about what it means to love, you know? So uh, there, there is kind of a, a sense of, you know, we, we need to kind of do things out of love and that that should be what drives us. But at the same time, sometimes we have to be careful because what we tend to do is sometimes conflate love with just whatever my, what my heart wants. And one of the other things that we know from the scriptures, you see in like Jeremiah 17, 9, there's this, this famous verse that a lot of people, especially a lot of Calvinists, will talk about that is, the heart is above all things deceitful. And it, it's right there. It's absolutely true. The heart wants things that sometimes, you know, we're not really supposed to want. You know, sometimes we're driven to things we're not supposed to be driven towards. And so it helps to actually stop for a second and think about what is love actually. Is it just a matter of desire? Is that all it is? Is it just a matter of I want this? And I'm not just talking about I want this in terms of a, you know, uh, male-female, you know, relationship, dating, marriage, what have you. But I'm just saying in general. Is it as simple as that? I want something and therefore I love it? Well, we have verses that talk about this kind of thing, but sometimes, uh, you know, once again, I think we tend to kind of, 
you know, overlook them or kind of trivialize them a little bit. So the first place that I want to go to is something that we see when we start talking about, uh, you know, the type of Christ love that he had. We go to Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. We see this. You have heard that it is said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your father, in, as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, a couple of things in here that really require a little bit more attention. And it's the, kind of the most obvious thing is, is this, you know, kind of exhortation telling us that if we are going to love other individuals, then, you know, love isn't really proved out by convenience. And I think that, you know, that's a, another one of these things that sometimes, you know, that this world kind of has. We live in a very, like, almost violently individualistic society where people say, I want this and I want to love other people, but there's like a hierarchy of loves. And at the top is the fact of, you know, things that, things that I kind of want or people who agree with me are kind of, I guess what I would say, easy loves. Those are kind of at the top of your hierarchy. And then, you know, things that are, that are down that are kind of nice to haves are. And then other people, if you have an opportunity to love them, you should go love them. Um, and that's kind of a worldly way of looking at love. But instead, what you have is Christ looking at it and kind of flattening that hierarchy and saying, no, love all individuals. You know, now he's not saying don't love people that, you know, are easy to love. But he's just saying you should also be equally willing to love the people that disagree with you. And I think here is exactly where we end up seeing so many, so many individuals practice of Christianity start actually flagging a little bit. You start seeing individuals who look at things and say, well, I love people, but, you know, there's certain areas that I just have a hard time tolerating. And, you know, okay, that's all well and good, but, like, understand that you're acting contrary to what Christ says. You know, Christ doesn't say that you should love all individuals. However, put a barrier on that love or controls on that love if they disagree with you politically or if they disagree with you socially. You know, it's kind of funny because the more and more and more that I found myself in, in just my own life and kind of my own journey trying to mature as an individual and as a Christian, uh, I've, I've found myself, you know, kind of stepping away from a lot of, um, uh, you know, politics and rhetoric and things like that. Because, I mean, I was always just interested in the, I, I don't know if this makes me sound like a, a bad person or Machiavellian or whatever, but I was just like the game of politics. I just find it fascinating, you know, kind of the way people think and the way they process things and all that. It's just kind of interesting, you know. I can look at somebody who radically disagrees with me on policy or opinions and kind of see that they did some kind of clever maneuver and go, that was really good. That was a good move. So I was always really interested in it. But, you know, as I backed away from that, and really I've, I've not hidden the fact, you know, to, to you guys or anybody else, that I very much kind of eschew off a lot of politics and political involvement. As I've done that, and I found myself just kind of diving in more and actually, you know, being, being critical about things in the scripture, not critical criticizing the scripture, but criticizing my own understanding of the scripture, I feel like I've seen myself maybe moving in a slightly different direction with things. You know, looking at things and saying, you absolutely, in the same way that I've always thought, cannot compromise the integrity and the truth of the Bible. That cannot be compromised in the name of simply appealing to society or merging with whatever we think the norms and the morals or values are of kind of the world out there. If you compromise the truth, then there's no point in following any of it. If you're going to compromise any ounce of Christ, 
then you might as well just not follow any of Christ. Because we do see that God is, after all, a jealous God. And he's jealous because he wants all of us. He gave everything for us, and so he wants all of us. You cannot compromise that. At the same time, it is also true that we are not called to judge other individuals who are around us. The criticisms of the scripture levied towards how we do things and towards our own ideals and our own values and our own behaviors are not provided to us in the scripture so that we can turn around and use those as a weapon against other individuals and how they live. They're there so that we can guide ourselves and our own actions and so that we can become better reflections of Christ. Now, in talking with other individuals, we want to talk love to them. We want to talk truth to them. But it should always be rooted in the same care and gentleness and compassion that we saw Christ do it with. He never once compromised on what he believed. But at the same time, we don't see him going up to individuals and then pointing a bony finger at them and saying, I'm going to come to die for all people, but not you, because you didn't really you know, bend the knee hard enough prior to coming to me. Instead, you see individuals in their dirty, profane, injured, whatever detestable state coming to Christ and Christ offering them forgiveness through their faith, not through any kind of action that they did. So you can see that Christ lived his own life through love rather than the law. And this is why we end up seeing, you know, so often Christ criticizing people like the Pharisees who wanted to insist that there be adherence to the law before you became an individual who is right with God. Instead, the entire story of God throughout the entire Bible, especially throughout the Old Testament, what you see is you end up seeing a disobedient Israel, a disobedient Hebrew people, disobedient individuals doing things that are counter to God, and God still standing up for, for truth. There's still a sense of justice. Sometimes there's still trials and tribulations and all that. But then you see God raising up an individual to pursue his people. God pursues us, and that's exactly what he did through Christ, is he pursued us, not because we were worthy of pursuit, but because through his love he wanted to pursue us. And I think that right there is the message that so many Christians get wrong today, is that we should be driven to want to pursue people who hate us. We should want to pursue people who disagree with us, not so that we can get them to understand that we're right and they're wrong, but because we love them. And we, want, we feel sympathy for them. We want them to be able to enjoy the wholeness and the peace and the satisfaction you can have through a more fulfilled life with Christ. That's what we want. There's something else that's in this section here, and it's at the very end where it says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this is interesting because we read it today, and it almost sounds counter to everything I was just saying. It almost sounds like what we're seeing here is some kind of call to say, Well, you should be perfect. Don't have any flaws about you. That, that's what you should be after. You should be after perfection, you know, without any errors, without any flaws. But that's a, that's a misread of what is intended here in the Bible. See, this is one of the reasons why we, we have to be very, very careful when people just lift verses and then want to chuck them on social media or something and say, well, there you go, and like not actually look at the context of it. Because perfection, the word perfect, as used in the Bible, frequently is not used to mean exactly the same thing we think when we think of a 100% on a test a grade that I never once got when I was in college. What, we, what is intended when we see the word perfect in the Bible is something that means complete and purposeful. And so when you see that and you read it that way, think about this. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
God has purpose. God is complete. God is all the things that we want and could desire and could imagine and more. He is all of those things and the ultimate purpose we could possibly live for. And the call here that Christ is giving us is to be an individual that is complete in our call to God. Is to be an individual that finds purpose in the same things that God found purpose in. God found purpose in the, this creation in order to display His glory. And the ultimate display of His glory is His love. And so we end up seeing that there is absolutely this critical element of what we believe as Christians that surrounds the concept of love. And it's not just sufficient to say it's whatever we want to do. And it's not sufficient to say that, you know, love is some concept that just kind of gets thrown in a bowl and mixed up with everything else. And then we pull out whatever kind of Jesus-y theme we want for the situation. It's to say that in all of our interactions, all of them should be infused with the sense of love we have for other individuals. Inside the church, we should be speaking with love first rather than agendas or traditions or biases or, or, or uh, theologies or whatever it is. The first thing that should be there should be love. Everything else should come downstream of that. There's nothing that conflicts there with saying that we can speak truth with love. There's nothing there that says we can't speak accountability with love or Bible study with love or service with love. We can do all these things with love, but it has to be with love. That element has to remain there. And if you lose that, then you're losing the thing that makes you more than just a Christian-themed organization. If you want something like that, there are plenty of service organizations that are Jesus-themed that you can go join. You can go be a part of the Salvation Army, and you know you can go do that. They're a Jesus-themed organization. They do lots of things. I don't know that you're going to get a lot of the church family aspect, but you can absolutely go do that. And, you know, they'll sit there and talk about the Bible from time to time. And, you know, I've never been to, like, a little conference thing they do, but I'm sure they have music and stuff like that. You can do all the things you want there. You know, if you just want the Jesus-themed aspects of it, then feel free to just kind of, like, you know, watch some of the stuff on TV not actually engage with any kind of family or anything. And you know what? You never have anybody bother you. They won't ever call you unless you give them money and then they might call you every day because they want more money. Like, but, you know, you can, you, can, you can be a part of these Christian organizations out there and they will do lots of Christian-y things and you can feel good about yourself and you can do that. But if you want something more and you want what Christ actually came here to give, then you want to be a part of an organization that, you know, is more than just an organization. You want to be a part of a family. And what distinguishes the difference between a family and a religious organization is there's a real genuine care for you. For you as an individual and what you're going through and what you might go through and who you are in your, your salvation and your relationship with Christ and all the different aspects of who we are. This is one of the things that when we talk about love, you know, you're kind of driven instantly to certain parts of Scripture. And one of the ones I talk about... Uh, kind of a lot when it comes to love is the fact that, um, you know, certain love scriptures are frequently taken out of context because they kind of sound good, right? Um, you know, especially at weddings. We see things all the time where people will take certain things of scripture and they'll read it at a wedding because it sounds really nice at a wedding. Hey, it's always a crowd pleaser, right? You go to 1 Corinthians 13, everyone's going to love it, right? And not love it like the love that said 1 Corinthians, but whatever. Everybody's going to enjoy it, right? You know, they're going to think it fits and it's appropriate. Um, but once again, you end up kind of selling short exactly what's going in here when you just look and go like, oh, well, that's kind of like a thing we, we say at weddings. Because the reality is that so many of these verses that we'll use about love that are kind of taken out of context to talk about like our significant other or something like that are talking about something that's really so much more profound than that. 
And so that being said, we have to go to the aforementioned love chapter. So if we go to 1 Corinthians 13, we end up saying this. It's the whole chapter, but it's only uh, 13 verses, so hang in there. Uh, if I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions and if I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy, it is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. When I thought like a child, I reasoned like a man. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So, once again, a lot of times, I mean, we hear this, but I, I think most of us, probably when we have heard this, you know, quoted, has been in the context of a wedding. But you know what's interesting is when you go through, so we're going to get playfully into humanetics here and theology, that when you go through here, a lot of people don't call this the love chapter. They call it the charity chapter. And if you have a King James Bible, that's the word you're going to see in there is charity. And it's interesting. There's a lot of things that I find interesting as to why it's translated that way that I am very confident almost none of you would be interested in. So I won't go over those. But if you want to know about it, we can geek out afterwards. Um, but everything boils down to this. What's being communicated in here is not a type of love that is taking place between a man and a woman who are sitting here getting married. There's something here that is talking much more about our willingness to, to do for another individual, our willingness to sacrifice for another individual, a willingness to serve. So all the things that we just got done over the last several weeks talking about, to support and serve and to encourage and to build up, it's all of these types of things are encompassed in this word for love that's being used here and has been translated and retranslated many, many, many times over all of our English translations that we have today. And so when you end up looking at it that way, you end up looking at it and saying, think about it, our support, our service, our encouragement, and our willingness to build each other up is patient. It is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. When you think about our service and all of that, it doesn't boast. It's not arrogant. Building somebody up. We talked about that. When you build somebody up, don't build somebody up in a way that you just, you know, kind of thump your own chest and say, look at how religious I am because I can know more than you and I can build you up. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. We don't sit here and try to insist and use religion like a bludgeon against other individuals. We're not trying to seek our own glory. It's not irritable. One that I frequently mess up with, especially when I have a newborn in my life. But it's not irritable. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. The thing that can be so incredibly difficult when you end up in a situation, especially inside the church, where you have people or groups or whatever that have hurt you tremendously in the past, and being able to approach new situations with those individuals and say, you know what, let me treat this with a sense of love. 
Let me show this with a sense of compassion. Somebody may have hurt me deeply in the past, but they need service, but they need support. Let me see if I can't do that. This sense of love, it never ends. It's something that, you know, we end up seeing all these other things talked about in this chapter that we think of as kind of the pinnacles of being a religious individual. Being able to prophesy, being able to have that kind of faith that we read about in the Bible, things that we've heard stories about where people can do these amazing, miraculous things just simply due to their faith. And yet what you see here is Paul describing the fact that without love, that is all meaningless. Immediately what comes to mind is something that I know I've said several times over the last several weeks, and that is that God doesn't need us in order to do what he wills to do. If we won't do something, God will find somebody else. Your church can fail. Your congregation can fail. You can sit here and say, nope, God, I'm not going to do that. But you know what? God's not going to be stopped because you won't do it. Either A, uh, he will find somebody else to go do it, or he will look at you and he'll kind of smirk and go, no, we're going to do this. And things will happen that lead to us doing this. Um, so God doesn't need us. And when you connect it to this right here, you can see that borne out. Because what Paul is saying is that all of these things that we think about, that religious giants, that giants of faith and of, of ministry can accomplish, that all of those things without the right heart don't mean anything. This is one of the reasons why I know that going back for many years when it comes to, you know, asking people for help for different things and all that, you know, uh, one of the things that I've always kind of said is that I don't ever want to be in a situation where I'm having to beg people to help out with something when it comes to like ministry. Uh, because when it comes to ministry, the motivation does matter. If we do all of the correct things, we do all the right actions, and we tithe, and we sing, and we serve, and we do all those great things, but we have a heart that is hateful, that is doing it because it's self-seeking, or that's doing it because it's arrogant, then that cuts against everything else that we're doing. And this is where we see Christ several times quoting in his own ministry the words that are in Hosea 6, 6 that say, For I desire faithful love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. When we sit here and we look at the difference between what it means to be a part of the, the body of Christ versus just being a part of another church, or we look at what it means to be a part of a church family rather than just kind of being a, a passive attendant of, of regular services that I consume on a regular basis, the difference that's in there is the power of love. It's the power of love in our ability to support one another, to serve one another, to be able to encourage one another and build each other up. These are things that only really work if we look at each other as something more than co-members in a club. We have to look at each other as more than just co-workers inside of some business. We have to look at each other as something that's united by some sort of force that is eternal, something that overcomes our differences. I have no doubt in my mind that if we were to sit here and get into a detailed conversation about any number of topics, we could find many topics where we disagree on things. You know, especially like, look, I am an individual where like, I, I work on it all the time, a flawed individual, but like, I have opinions, okay? I have opinions on things. I think some of us, and I will, I will stare at the back of the church so nobody feels convicted here. I think some of us are opinionated. Okay, so... Uh, whoever that convicted, that is between you and God. Um, 
But the thing is, we can still be united by the fact that we have something that is bigger, something that is mightier that connects all of us. There's something that drives us to get together and to work together when it's inconvenient. There's something that causes us to sacrifice for one another when we need to sacrifice. There's something that causes us to look at the burden we put on other individuals and not want to burden another individual, not out of some kind of shyness or, or kind of soft private arrogance, but out of a sense of legitimate compassion for another individual. We want to be patient with each other. We want to be kind with each other. And we want to do all these things, not because there's any worldly reason to do it, but because the thing that unites us. Christ was first patient with us. Christ was first kind with us. He, didn't, he had nothing to envy about us. He didn't brag about the fact that he was God and that we were not. Christ was absolutely not arrogant, submitting himself to the ultimate humility. He wasn't rude. He wasn't self-seeking in any way, shape, or form. We see time and time and time again Christ in situations where we absolutely would have been irritable, but yet he continued to be patient with individuals. And we saw Christ continually looking at individuals and not counting their wrongs. If he did, then what he did on the cross wouldn't have meant anything. The ultimate display of Christ's glory the ultimate display of god's glory through christ is what he did on the cross not because he did a parlor trick and not because he did a miracle if it was about resurrection from the dead he had actually already done that the greatest thing that we see christ do on the cross is display a style and a type of love that is absolutely incomprehensible to all of us that is what christ displayed the actual miracle on Easter is not the fact that he raised from the dead even. It's not even the fact that he, you know, did all the things that led up you know, during Holy Week. It's the fact that he persisted in love in a way that absolutely none of us could have done. So as we sit here and we think about what's taking place in Easter, I think we, we have to be compelled to think about why we're even here. The reason why we are here is not just just to learn some historical lessons and it's not just to be a fan of Christ it's not just to you know maybe get a little bit better one day you know because we hear some good lessons we're here to love one another we're here to love the world around us we're here to especially love the world around us and so as we sit here and we think about what God is doing we have to think about what God is God is love being perfect as God means having the same purpose as him. It means being completed by the same things that complete the person of Christ. What we know is that the, the covenant of God, established with Abraham and going all the way through the Old Testament, was completed. The law was completed, was satisfied in the person of Christ. It was ultimately satisfied by his love. So if that's the case, then as a, as a church, as a family, and as individual Christians in our own conduct, we have to be willing to challenge every single action that we do, good and bad and indifferent, by asking that question, is love infused in every single facet of what we did? Because it was infused in every single facet of what Christ did. So we should seek to live the same. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that during this time of, uh, this time of remembrance, this time of uh, kind of solemn reverence, and this time of celebration coming up in Easter, that we would be driven by the things of love, that we would be convicted to look at the relationships that we have, the way we interact with other individuals, and ask ourselves, 
are we exhibiting the same type of love that, that your son exhibited when, when he came here on earth? I think that in all of our interactions, it's, it's obvious that we fall short day to day to day to day. God, you send people and opportunities into our lives on a regular basis to challenge us and to test us and to show us how far we fall short. And we are so immensely thankful that every single time we fall short, you continue to show us that love and grace and you continue to pick us back up. And we just pray that as we have new opportunities and as we are challenged in new ways by new circumstances, new things in our household, at our places of work and out in the community, that we would be willing to do the hard thing, be willing to do the thing that's not convenient, the thing that's not easy. We'd be willing to choose love when choosing the, the opposite would be so easy and so acceptable in our world. Help us, Lord, to be instruments of love and in doing that to be instruments of your glory, not so that we can get any kind of credit or, or any kind of you know, good reputation off of it, but so that you can be magnified. We pray these things in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.